Do you mind if I smoke? It won't affect the test. All right, I'm going to ask you a series of questions. Just relax and answer them as simply as you can. You've got a little boy. He shows you his butterfly collection, including the killing jar. I'd take him to the doctor. You're listening to a podcast. Suddenly, you realize there's a wasp crawling on your arm. Which podcast? It doesn't matter. Just answer the questions, please. Which podcast? Um, now playing the movie review podcast hosted by Stuart, Jacob, and Brock. The movie series being reviewed is the Philip K. Dick series with such classic films as Blade Runner, Total Recall, and Minority Report. I go to nowplayingpodcast.com every Friday to download a new episode of the series. You hear a warning that these podcasts will be full of spoilers. I hit pause, watch the movie, and then listen to the podcast. You're reading a magazine. You come across a full-page photo of a naked woman. Shh, with the questions. The podcast is starting. Today we're talking about Blade Runner, starring Harrison Ford, Sean Young, Rutger Hauer, Edward James Olmos, and directed by Ridley Scott. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A. And this is Jacob from Los Angeles in 2019. Whoa, we're talking to the future, man. (laughs) Which, oddly enough, looks like an Atari commercial. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this is our first episode in our Philip K. Dick retrospective series, starting off with a very famous movie, Blade Runner. Now, why don't we get into this really quickly about what we're doing here with Philip K. Dick as a retrospective series. Some of you may not know who Philip K. Dick is. Some of you may. He is a science fiction author who has written the short stories for some of the most creative movies of the past 20, 30 years. And we are excited about this because this is not the kind of retrospective series we normally do. And it's Philip K. Dick. You gotta love the guy. (laughs) If you don't, become literate. Start reading his stuff. (laughs) Seriously, he's one of the few authors who actually gets billing like Tom Cruise or Arnold Schwarzenegger does. Every time they come out with a movie that adapts one of his works, you're going to see them drop his name in the advertisements. He is a selling point. You know what you're going to get when you get Philip K. Dick. You're going to get smart sci-fi with lots of head twists, lots of things that make you question what really happened. I like that you said smart sci-fi. You know, I love Star Wars. It's a great fantasy movie. It's not great sci-fi. Great sci-fi, it really hits you. And Philip K. Dick, he does great sci-fi. And the fun thing about this is I had no idea some of these movies were his stories. But when you think about it, after you think about the titles on our agenda, it really does make sense that, yeah, this comes from the same guy. All right, so what are we talking about? Let's run them off so people can add them to their Netflix. Okay, so the first one we're going to start off is with Blade Runner. And the next one is going to be a fan favorite I know, Total Recall. After that, there's a couple of movies people may not have heard of called Screamers, starring Peter Weller from RoboCop fame. Imposter, starring Gary Sinise and Vincent D'Onofrio. Then comes Minority Report. I'm sure everyone's heard of that one. That stars Tom Cruise, directed by Steven Spielberg. After that, Paycheck, starring the ubiquitous Ben Affleck. The next one is something that got a lot of press when it came out. It's called A Scanner Darkly, and that's the rotoscoped animation film. We'll get into it when we get there, but it's definitely a landmark of some kind. Cool. Next, we have Next with Nicolas Cage. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, him and Affleck. 
This isn't Con Air Nicolas Cage, is it? <laughs> it's hard to know. Is it Nicolas Cage that needs a paycheck? Are you sure he's not in paycheck, too? Because last I heard, Nicolas Cage could be using some dough. <laughs> and we're going to wrap this all up because we are leading up to the brand new Philip K. Dick movie called Adjustment Bureau. Not a lot's known about it right now. We know that it's Matt Damon and the screenwriter that's worked on all of the Bourne films with him that's finally getting his directorial debut about a bureaucracy meant to keep him away from the woman he wants to marry. Yeah, that sounds science fiction-y. Yeah. <laughs> Either that or a J-Lo rom-com. It's not J-Lo in it, so I feel better about it. Hey, if we had Nicolas Cage, Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and J-Lo, I think this would be a killer series right there. Yes. <laughs> So that's the lineup, folks, and I don't know about you guys, but, well, I've seen some of these movies, and some of these movies I've never even heard of. I gotta tell you, I'm really looking forward to this. I think it's really exciting, the collection of people that are working on this. Normally, with sequels, you're gonna get a few people, and they do it again, and again, and again, and again. This time, we have a wide variety of talent, and I use that word loosely in some cases, but... <laughs> Where else are you going to work with John Woo and Ridley Scott, Harrison Ford and Arnold Schwarzenegger? I mean, these people don't collaborate, but under the umbrella of Philip K. Dick, under the umbrella of a smart, twisty science fiction story, we're going to be able to talk about all of them. And I think that's what's really cool is rather than do an endless series of sequels, which after a while, after you get to an eight or nine, maybe it's not so varied. I think each movie is going to be very distinct and We'll see. Hopefully all of them have something to offer. I agree, and I think that this is something that everyone could get something out of. You know, some of our series are very much singular in the kind of fan base they may have. This one has something for everybody, or at least it seems that way on paper. And especially since now we can lead up to the Adjustment Bureau movie, it's going to be exciting for us as, as the summer goes on. What's really funny for me is Philip K. Dick is an author that I think, oh, I love him, he's great. And then I realized as we were talking about this series, I've actually never read him. You know, I'm just like, I think he's great because I think of these movies, but I don't actually know any of the works in the original form. So, thusly, there's going to be a corresponding podcast on booksandnachos.com where I'm going to be analyzing the original Philip K. Dick works. A lot of cases, they're just short stories. So if this podcast is not enough for you, if you need more dick in your life, and who doesn't, <laughs> head on over to Books and Nachos, and I'm going to give you some dick. I have a feeling we're in for a lot of dick jokes with this right now. <laughs> oh, my God, yes. We're going to have more dick jokes than a Kevin Smith movie. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and we promised to not be so lowbrow the whole time because this is smart sci-fi. Yeah, we'll get it out of our system right now. Absolutely. So that sounds a great idea because I have read the original Blade Runner book, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Jacob, are you familiar with any of the source material yourself? Yeah, I actually came to know Philip K. Dick when I was in college. I was taking a science fiction as literature class where the professor had troubles running a VCR. Yes, <laughs> they're still using VCRs back then, and she couldn't use technology. It was also a class in irony, apparently. <laughs> it sounds like it. I love it. But, uh, yeah, we first read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which Blade Runner is based on, and I really like Philip K. Dick's style. It gets a bit overbearing at times, but the guy's a loon. It's like if you took Hunter S. Thompson and he decided to write science fiction instead of uh, weird press trips in Nevada, 
You got Philip K. Dick, drug addled. But I've seen probably half the movies that we're doing for this retrospective. I never really saw them because I associated them with Philip K. Dick, but I enjoyed some of them. And, you know, I saw Total Recall because it's Arnold Schwarzenegger, and I was like 15. Of course I'm going to go see that. <laughs> but I, I've read a, a couple of novels by Dick, a handful of his short stories, and he's probably my favorite science fiction author. Fantastic. And I've also seen only half of these. I have seen Minority Report, for example, because it was a big Hollywood movie coming out in that summer. Exactly, yeah. But there were some movies that are on our list that I never even heard of. There are some that are hard to find. <laughs> yeah, so... I, I think that some have been purposely swept under the rug, and so those will be some of the most interesting ones to watch, I think. I have to agree. I think all three of us coming fresh to the material will be something fun, because we have all seen the big ones in this series, starting with Blade Runner. This is not the first time for any of us watching this movie, correct? Correct. And let me just say, uh, you know, there are multiple iterations of Blade Runner. I've seen all of them now multiple times. Wow. For this podcast alone, I rewatched the original theatrical version, the director's cut, which is the first one that I ever saw, and this new final cut that came out a couple years ago. I first watched this movie about five years ago because I knew it's such a cult classic, and, you know, I had just started up with Netflix, and, and that's the purpose of Netflix is to catch up on all those movies that you've heard great things about and never seen. Completely agree. And by the way, Netflix is not paying us, but if they want to, <laughs> you know, go ahead. We'd love a sponsor. Please. Um, <laughs> and I think I saw the director's cut. I've never seen the original cut. I was trying to find notorious clips of it on YouTube last night, and I'm sure we'll get into why that original cut is so notorious. But five years ago, I saw the director's cut for this show. I believe we all watched the final cut. I'm not really sure what the difference between the two are. They are small, but in some ways important distinctions. And I watched this movie for the first time when I was about 10 or 11 years old. We had a copy of it at the house in the original format. It was before the director's cut came out. And I watched it because it's Harrison Ford. It's Han Solo. It's Indiana Jones. I got to watch this movie. And I was bored out of my skull. Now, I was like 10 years old. I probably was not the target audience for this. And so in my head for all those years, it was a boring movie. and I don't like this movie. And so then I went to college and all my friends were like, oh, this is the greatest movie of all time. This and this and that. And they did a new version of it. You have to see the new version of it. So much better. Better. So I went to the video store and got the new version of it. This was after the director's cut was released. And while I did enjoy it more, I was still bored. I found the pacing to be extremely labored. I found it's just boring to me. So I watched it and I wasn't crazy about it. And then fast forward 10 more years and I'm at a book fair. And, you know, those things at the libraries towards the end of the summer when they, people give away their books and you get the library gets like, you know, a quarter or 50 cents a book, whatever, a dollar a book. And I found the original novel. It was the actual Philip K. Dick novel with the Blade Runner cover. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people still think the book is called Blade Runner. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah, how popular this movie was. Yes. Well, I bought the book, read the book, loved the book. And then I heard they were coming out with this final cut thing, so I didn't watch the final cut until now. And I will tell you now, I did not find it as boring as I did the first two times I watched it. I was really, I got into the movie this time, which is good. Jacob, you said it was a cult classic, and you said it was a big hit. I don't think this movie was a big hit. I think it was the epitome of a cult classic. I think people did like it, but it's not universally loved. You're right, and by big hit, I mean a big hit after the fact. It became big once it hit VHS, and it got that mm -hmm. underground following. Okay. And, and that's what I meant. But, Brock, I totally relate to your first viewing of this film. When I first saw this about five years ago, and I had read the book, but, you know, again, it's Harrison Ford, you know? <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's an action movie. He's hunting androids. I know! And I'm like, <laughs> I think I actually fell asleep. <laughs> yes, I know. While watching it, I'm like... 
But this time watching it, I was totally consumed. So I had a similar experience sitting down and watching it again this time. I... Oh, good. Thank goodness, because I thought I was going to get skewered by you two about admitting that I was bored watching this movie the first couple of times. <laughs> no, I fell asleep the first time I watched this. Okay, good, because I think I did too, honestly. This was before Now Playing was around, but on the same message board. I think I even posted a thread on there saying, why is this a cult hit? I don't get it. <laughs> There's no doubt that this movie requires a totally different mind frame than anything else I think Harrison Ford ever made. You're right. At that point, he was a big star when this movie came out. Raiders of the Lost Ark had come out the previous year. We had had the first two chapters of Star Wars. The man walked on water. He was the biggest star probably in the planet, and no one would expect him to turn up in this grisly, depressing, earth gone to shit. I mean, LA's already bad, but then you look at the, 2019, you're like, oh boy. So how about a plot summary, Brock? Basically, the story is about Rick Deckard, a former Blade Runner who was put back into service because there are Six Nexus 6 replicants back on Earth. Replicants are androids that look extremely human who are used mostly off-planet for slave labor. There's actually pleasure models, etc. And they have come to Earth to hide among us, live among us, and find a way to extend their lives because the Nexus 6 robots have a lifespan of four years. So they're among us, and this Blade Runner has to find them. And he has a test called the Voigt Kampf test to figure it out, ask for emotional questions, get emotional responses. He goes to the Tyrell Corporation to get information on this series. They're the company that makes them. Meets Rachel, who is the most advanced replicant he's ever met because she takes triple the time to fail the test. Amy, he actually starts to fall in love with her. So the movie is Rick Deckard trying to find these replicants. They trying to find a way to live longer. And Deckard trying to fight his emotional connection to the replicant Rachel. That's the basic movie summary right there. We're going to go into plot details as we go along. This movie's not easy to categorize in a linear fashion because... So much of the way that I experience it when I wash it is like going into a trance. I mean, part of this is designed as a 1940s film noir detective story like you would watch 60, 70 years ago. This is not designed in a way that just because you might love Maltese Falcon, I don't think that means you're going to take the Blade Runner per se. It's much harder to follow this plot. It's much harder to know what's going on in any character's minds. What you're really taken with is how evocative this world is, how uh, detailed and how astounding, I would use the word astounding, it is to see Los Angeles in the state in 2019. Which is nine years from now in real life. And this came out in 1982 to think that, well, nine years from now would be like that. It's pretty dark, man. You haven't been to L.A., have you, Brock? I have never been to L.A. <laughs> I mean, we don't have a couple of large pyramids in the middle of the city yet. Give them time, right? Yeah, it, we're about there. You know, it's interesting, though. We discussed Back to the Future 2, which took place in 2015. Flying cars are the constant. Where are the flying cars, people? Toyota, get on it. You bring that up. What's interesting in this film is that you don't see regular people having the flying cars. There's a lot of commentary going on in this movie about class and social structure. Who do you see flying in the air? It's the corporate blimps with their constant advertisements 
and it's the cops. It's the authority. There's definitely a class structure going on here, so it's not quite the utopia of Back to the Future where everyone gets a flying car. Just the people in power get them in this movie. Also, I noticed in this movie, this world is not very populated. They're in Chinatown a lot, or what I thought was Chinatown. It could be just Los Angeles at this point, with a lot of Asian influences, because all the billboards, which are on the side of buildings, these video screens have geishas <laughs> smiling and advertising. Really, globalization is a yeah. theme going on here. You have this weird Asian-influenced L.A., which this came out, what, in 82? Yeah, the whole Japanese electronic superiority and, and car thing was just coming about. I think this was actually pretty forward-looking for some of that very subtle commentary going on in just the visuals of this movie. Absolutely. And did you see the geisha dancers with the Jason masks on? In yes. There? Awesome. <laughs> totally <God>. cool. <laughs> But it seemed like to me that there weren't a lot of humans in this city. It seemed like they all were off-world. And who were left are those people, as you said, who weren't affluent. But then again, some of them are making replicant snakes. To me, it sounds complicated, but these people can do it at a stand or a small shop on the corner. And I was confused on if they're so smart and able to do this sort of thing, then why are they still on Earth when all the affluent people seem to be off-world? A lot of this is illuminated in the book, and it's more a subtext here. Ridley Scott never read the book, and I don't think that he was interested in following the book in a linear fashion. But there are concepts from the book that are definitely represented, one of which was that this is post-World War III. Obviously, something went wrong here in Los Angeles because, Jacob, you're from here, you know, where is the sun and why is it raining? I mean, it never rains in Los Angeles. I mean, maybe five times a year. But the sun is constantly blacked out by smog. So I, I was able to, yeah, we do not get the rain, though. <laughs> yeah, perhaps you're right. I mean, yeah, maybe it's just our pollution has gotten that bad. But there's been some kind of environmental catastrophe. In the book, it's alluded to that there's this toxic dust. Maybe it's fallout. Maybe it's nuclear. But it's poisoned the world. It's killed off all the animals. And it's made all the humans humans mutated. They either have physical deformities or they're mentally impaired. They didn't quite play so much with the mental impaired here in this movie, but you definitely feel like a lot of the people you see are people that can't pass the physical. They can't actually get off world to go and have a better life in a colony on the moon or on Mars. Like Tyrell has those big, thick Coke bottle glasses, and you have the guy from Newhart, Sebastian, he has that facial thing, and he's only 25, but he looks like he's 45 because he's rapidly aging. They call it Methuselah syndrome, but I think it's kind of like progeria. It's, it's accelerated aging. Which I thought was a great parallel because he was hoping the androids who were concerned about dying because they're quote-unquote rapidly aging, they have a four-year lifespan, and here is a human who has a very similar problem, which I thought was a nice parallel for why they were helping each other out. Well, and then you got Edward James almost playing Gaff, another cop here. There's got to be something wrong with that guy. He was just <laughs> weird. Something with his eyeball or something, yeah. I figured out what it is on my eighth watch. I finally figured out what it is. I finally got it. Edward James Olmos, obviously a Latin actor. I'm not sure exactly his ethnicity, but he has blue eyes. I kept thinking they were robot eyes, like maybe he's a robot. And then I'm like, well, the robots don't have weird eyes. So what is it? It's the whole idea. And you can learn a lot about this movie that is not in the movie directly by watching a very thorough documentary that comes with the final cut. It's called Dark Days, and it's about three and a half hours long, and I tell you what, any detail you want hashed out, they will. His whole concept of this character was that he was multi-ethnic. 
He talks in a strange language, which he invented. Edward James almost just said, I'm going to make up city speak, which is going to be an amalgam of 20 different cultural languages in a slangy way. And it's like half Hungarian, half Spanish, half Japanese. He kept the blue eyes because he wanted to represent white people as well as his Latin heritage. So what you're seeing here is an amalgam of someone who is 40 different cultures all at once. That information is interesting to have now. But while watching the movie, you're like, WTF. And that's the big problem, I think, with this movie. I think one of the reasons that I probably didn't connect with it as a younger man, or perhaps some a lot of other people didn't connect with it, and why it's a cult classic as opposed to a generally well-loved classic by all moviegoers in general, is that kind of stuff isn't explained in this movie, and we're left to our own devices as to what's going on, and that's not fair. I shouldn't have to read extra supplemental material or watch a documentary of three and a half hours to understand <laughs> what I'm watching in a movie. Brock, that information's not necessary. I think that's neat. But I like the ambiguity, and I'm, I'm sure we'll get into the differences between the different cuts here, but there's a lot more ambiguity in the director and final cut, and I like that. I like to be able to make my own decision. I like art that gives you little hints here and there, but it, it's not a, a tyrant. It's not going to say, this is the message, and beat you over the head with a lead pipe like this movie originally did. Well, yeah, I'll give you that, Jacob, because there's a great scene in this movie that is when Roy Batty and Leon go to James Hong's little eye-making factory, and James Hong is this Asian actor that if you, you know him when you see him, guys. He's working forever, and he's wearing this big coat with these tubes coming out of it, and he's in this really cold room because everyone's breath is showing, and he's making these eyeballs. They don't tell you what's going on, but throughout the course of the scene, you figure everything out. Absolutely. He doesn't spell everything out for you, but if you're just paying attention to what's going on, you understand what they want. You understand why he's wearing the coat. You understand why he's making the eyeballs. You understand why it's cold in there. You understand everything. And so, yes, I love it that he doesn't hit you over the head with stuff and let the movie unfold. But there are things like when Edward Jane almost talks in that weird accent and things like that. I don't understand why that's there. For example, he does all those great origami stuff. That's not explained why. It's a character trait, which I thought was really kind of fun, but there's no reason why. But see, I got some interesting theories on that, and great art makes you debate and talk and converse. And so why tell me why he's doing that origami? Let me come up with some ideas. I meet another person that loves this movie. They have their own ideas. I mean, that's what art is to me. It starts a conversation. I completely agree with you. My point is that perhaps one of the reasons this is not a mainstream success is that some people just didn't want to take the effort, or perhaps some people didn't get it, or some people didn't want to get it. They came for an action movie, and they get all this other stuff they didn't want. That's a theory I have on maybe why this movie wasn't mainstream, or perhaps why I, as a 10-year-old boy, didn't get what's going on, because a 10-year-old boy can't possibly get it. Oh, this movie isn't for 10-year-old boys or for people into Michael Bay. I mean, if those are your, if you're one of those two, a fan of Michael Bay or a 10-year-old boy, not recommended. I'm going to put that up front. Yeah, I mean, it would have to say right now, at that point in 1982, we were coming out of a recession. People were wanting to look up. I feel nowadays everybody, you know, from Book of Eli or Avatar, everything is about a world that's fallen to shit. But back then, science fiction was like E.T. That's what we want to see. Star Wars. We want to see uplifting, spirited, positive representation. Wasn't The Road Warrior already released in Mad Max at this time? Also cult movies, not right. huge movies. And I'm not saying that this was the first science fiction movie that was a downer. I mean, Planet of the Apes, <laughs> The Omega Man, there was plenty of that. But 
But in this time, I mean, I think movies, when they're hits, they say as much about the culture that makes them a hit as they do about the story that's contained within. I think at that time, people were looking to feel positive. They wanted to feel good. The world, the 70s, had been a dark place post-Vietnam War. They wanted happiness. People were getting home computers, the whole idea of an automated life. That was a good thing. You know, I, a small wonder, short circuit. You leave Vicky out of this. <laughs> <laughs> we like robots and we want them in our lives. I mean, I definitely feel like that was a positive, something that was omnipresent in the 80s was the embracing of technology. And this movie really did not see that in any kind of positive way. I think it's what makes it more interesting now than at the time. It was just off-putting, I think, for a lot of people that wanted a good time story. And I think you're right. The first alienating idea is the idea that the U.S. has fallen to chaos. And not only that, but we've been overtaken by the Japanese. And then beyond that, you're right. It's the fact that it's a very nonlinear story. It's not clear what is happening between most of the characters until after the fact and upon reflection and making up your own determinants. So it's a Rorschach test. You're going to see what you want to see in it. And I think what is impressive about it is that Ridley Scott allowed so much of the ambiguity to go on without feeling the need to draw us in to the characters. It's a very myopic, distancing... I mean, I feel like an android watching it. Like, I watch this, I'm like, I have no... You know, they talk about the empathy. If you put the Voight comp on me while I'm watching this movie, I am not empathizing with Harrison Ford or any of the characters until the end. For most of the movie, it is really a wash about art direction and experiencing... A startling vision. You know, Ridley Scott, he may not be a great storyteller, but what a visionary and what a vision this is. Yeah, he was getting into cyberpunk before people had even heard the term cyberpunk with this movie. I mean, with just all the electronics and the sounds going on and, and his vision of the future... It, Coming at this movie as an adult, I can appreciate just how forward-looking this movie was, how ahead of its time it is. I agree. I also like the special effects in this movie are fantastic. The art direction, as you said. No damn CGI. I love old movies. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe the final cut was cleaned up a little bit, but I thought the cars and things looked great. The elevator on the side of the building. Everything looked so good in this movie. And this movie came out in 1982. You know, it was remarkable that these special effects, and I've picked on special effects over the course of these retrospective series. I'm not seeing a lot of problems here with this, and especially the beautiful art direction. When I was a kid, I didn't care about that kind of stuff. But watching this now, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. I mean, just that opening scene where it says Los Angeles, November 2019, and you see these huge fire plumes shooting into the air and just this massive landscape. Watching it this time, I was just consumed by that opening shot. I just thought it was amazing. It's a stunner. You know, one thing I noticed about this final cut that feels different from any other cut is it feels timed different. I actually feel like there's more blue in the picture than any previous cut. Did you guys get that? Like, there's a lot more light. It's brighter. The light in this movie is used very sparingly. And so I did not notice that because I did notice how dark it was. But constantly throughout the movie, there are light beams coming through windows. And I was curious on why the beams of light were constantly coming through and constantly doing that. Why no one could just turn on a light switch in the hallway <laughs> of these buildings or in the scene with Sebastian and Roy. Why isn't there lights on? Why aren't there? Why is it illuminated in the room? I mean, it's, it's a pyramid. <laughs> you ever seen a pyramid with electrical lights in it? Come on. Okay. <laughs> 
I bet you if the Egyptians had a way to do it, they would have done it. <laughs> I, I just felt that it was really, really dark, and obviously it was the tone of the movie. So what are you exactly talking about with it being brighter? All right, so in that opening shot, if you watch any earlier cut, I feel like it's red. And a lot of the movie has a orange-amber hue to it. This time watching this cut... It actually felt more blue, like they actually felt more like steel, more like metal. The color, the hues are different. It's I'm quite sure, and I never heard conclusively what they did to this print, but I'm sure they went back and retimed it, and I don't know if they added anything digital to it. It doesn't look like they did, but I just feel like there are more lights on than any other cut of this picture. The it's brighter. So as dark as you think this movie is, yeah. <laughs> if you were to go back and watch the theatrical cut, it's not as bright. And all of these things, I should be said, these are models that they built here. These are actually working models that they powered it with like seven miles of LED cable. And I think they have enhanced it for this cut. I think they went back and made it so that the lights are brighter. The windows, the buildings, all of that stuff has a brightness to it that it did not have. Then it must be pitch black in the other versions, yeah. man. It's a dark movie. It's a, yeah, in all ways. But that was one thing that I felt that was significant about this final cut was that the visual tone felt different. Let's talk about the replicants a little bit. And first of all, the words Blade Runner and replicant do not appear in Philip K. Dick's novel at all. These were concepts that were brought in by the screenwriters. They're not in there. They were called Andes or androids in the books. And what was he called? He was a bounty hunter. Yeah, there was no name for it. Blade Runner was actually a slang term from another science fiction novel that they had the rights to. They thought, that sounds cool. And it was about running surgical equipment illegally in a healthcare dystopia so it was kind of a, a similar dark science fiction story they just thought oh let's take this name for a scalpel runner and put it in our movie it makes certainly makes more sense as a scalpel runner than it does for a replicant hunter <laughs> i have to tell you that <laughs> yeah I've, again this movie is very comfortable with creating ambiguity i got the feeling from the movie that they were more like test tube babies whereas in the book there's a robotic component to them i didn't get that sense in this movie this is what's fascinating. I think this is what really makes Blade Runner distinct, is I can think of no movie that has ever shown robotic technology to be this human. Usually, even, like, let's take Ridley Scott's last movie, Alien. One of the characters at a pivotal moment is revealed to be an android, and he spurts this milk-like fluid, and they rip him apart, and he's this disembodied head with wires all hanging out of him. That's not how these robots work. They have everything that we have. I mean, their whole physiology is exactly like ours, except it's synthetic. Except you can like go down to the microscopic level and see serial numbers on hair follicles. But they are us, identically in a synthetic material. They have emotions, they smoke, they cry, they eat, they need all of these things. When you shoot them, red blood comes out and they die. There is no distinguishing between robot and human except for this empathy quality and that's such a fine line here i mean what does that mean how does empathy really separate humanity from robotic technology in the book it's very clear cut they have a whole subplot that is not here about this character named mercer who is a human messiah type person who unites people by their emotions our empathy makes us relatable and all these people 
can use these technology to remind themselves that they're humans and to relate to each other and to feel what other people are feeling. And the Andes are very jealous about that. None of that is here. And so it does leave the big question of what does the lack of empathy mean for these people? I mean, for these androids, for these replicants. Do you feel differently about them than you would if they were human? They're definitely set up as the other at the beginning. As a viewer, okay, I clearly... Decker, good guy, androids, bad guys. And of course, the movie is going to subvert that as it goes along. Talking about empathy with Dick's work, it's not just in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. That's a big thing for him in a lot of his works. It always comes up with this idea of empathy, and that's what makes us human. And Dick's work, very philosophical. A lot of his stuff is what makes us human, what makes us who we are. And while Blade Runner, it moves away from that whole empathy thing, I think it still sticks to that core question, what makes us human? When you live in this huge society, just this mass of people from all over the world, and the only people that are allowed to have flying cars are the authority and the, and the corporate overlords, are you still human? And, and so he sets up that dichotomy between android human and slowly throughout this movie diverts it. And that's what I like. It's vastly different from the book, but I like that there actually is a bit more exploration about what really is the difference between this replicant and this human being. Whereas Dick, in his work, it's always androids do not have empathy. You, you could try to fake empathy with these Nexus 6, you know, with this Rachel model, but in the end, you'll always be able to figure out they, they don't have empathy. So I actually like the changes made here. Rachel is a replicant. Deckard knows she is a replicant. Although the most advanced replicant he's ever seen, still a replicant. And yet, he fights falling for her and still falls for her. And she, I can't really tell if she falls for him or not until the end. But I found that whole thing very interesting that this Blade Runner, kind of like if you think about it, they use the same kind of theme in Buffy the Vampire Slayer when she fell for Angel in the TV show, that the very thing you're trying to hunt and get rid of, you are attracted to. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, th this tapped into uh, Metropolis, the age-old story that men will fuck a robot if it looks like a woman. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> Literary synopsis is by Jacob. Yes. Hey, that's what it comes down to. No, no, but that was my first thought, and then I thought about it a little bit deeper, Brock. <laughs> Just having fun with you, man. No, no, like that love that the I guess quote unquote love scene. I don't know how much of a love scene it is where it was like a rape scene, wasn't it? Violent, and it gets into that whole idea that Rape is about power, and if you look at it like that, Decker hates replicants. It's his job to hunt them, and it, you really get that kind of sense there. It turns by the end, but a lot of this movie is about learning to accept what you are or what the other is. Again, we talk about globalization and, and this diversity in the city, about accepting that kind of thing. So it gets tender at the end. What I noticed, you had that inverse kiss made famous by Spider-Man. This movie beat him to it. But there's some tenderness at the end there. But that first love scene, man, did he rape her? What was going on there? You're right. It's about power at that point. He thinks that she should do his will. And it's a startling scene because 
when we're finally ready for something to happen by that moment. The buildup has been enough. They've had several scenes together. She, she's kind of blown him off, and yet she comes to see him. We want to see something happen between these two. I wasn't prepared for her to be thrown against the wall and him to corner her in that way. And if this had not been Harrison Ford, Deckard would have lost me. I mean, if you look at how badly this man behaves, if it had not been the most likable biggest star on the planet, it, bringing in as much warmth as he can to that character. He's kind of a rascal like Han Solo. If he wasn't able to sell that to us, I think this scene, I would have entirely given up on the man. Because, I mean, let's run it down. He's an alcoholic. He's abusive to her. He only kills two people, women, who are unarmed, <laughs> in the back. <laughs> in the big climax of the scene, he runs away. I mean, there's nothing heroic about Rick Deckard at all. He's a chump. He's an asshole. But we're still with him because Harrison Ford is an innately likable rascal. And this scene really tested me. I got to say, I almost gave up on him at that moment. But it is an important moment for him to start empathizing with replicants because the irony is he's always doing these tests to see if these replicants have empathy, and if they don't, he knows they're a robot, he knows he can kill them. Well, he's just as cold-hearted as they are. And by the end, and it's more illuminated by Roy and him than it is by Rachel and him, but she certainly is part of his conversion to see that there's not much difference between artificial life and what we would call the human being. I thought when he was telling her to kiss her and tell me you want me, it was some sort of switch that he can control a replicant in a, you know what I'm saying? Like maybe there was something in there that she was a pleasure bot. Well, something like that, but more like he's instigating some sort of trigger in her robot mind that will get her in the mood for that. But that's kind of thin. I understand that's kind of thin. I was, the thing is I was trying to my mind to figure out and justify why he was doing that. And as Jacob said before this movie, you can interpret it many different ways. And so that's what I was doing after watching the movies. Why would he do that? Why was he trying to convince her to do that? Why was she okay with that? Why was she crying and then saying, yeah, okay. I mean, really, why didn't she put up more of a fight? So it was a very interesting scene. I agree with you about Deckard. And I was asking myself afterwards, too, why make him an alcoholic and why make him a former Blade Runner? Why not have him already still part of the group and still be the good guy? And I think that has to do with the guilt that he's feeling. Even though he's killing replicants, they still look like humans, even though he knows that they are replicant. They still look like humans. They still yell out like humans. They still bleed like humans. And I think that has worn him down to the point where he is a shell of a man. And I think that him falling in love with a replicant, that's the only place he can go at this point because his life has become just a shell. I'm getting all of this from my mind because the movie's not telling me any of this. I have to try to piece it together myself. I think that's a great thing, though. I mean, getting back to good art, there's good entertainment and then there's good art. And I wouldn't put this in the entertainment section. This is art. I want to be entertained in a movie, though. I mean, artistic movies are great, but the best kind of artistic movies can do both. Don't you agree? Yes, they can, yeah. And this is somewhere in the middle. <laughs> <laughs> they could have done a lot to bring the audience in closer to these characters. If they wanted to make a story in which we were really in court with Rick Deckard or with the androids and Rick Deckard was the jerk that has to have a change of heart and then start protecting them, they could have done a lot to make us identify with this. It's such a bold choice to make it so vague. Okay, I think the Nexus 6 Roy and Rachel 
Were he, I'm not sure if she was a Nexus 6 or not. They never say it, but what, basically the whole reason why he goes to Tyrell is he needs to make sure Voight Comp still works on a Nexus 6 because these are new and they're so sophisticated, this test might be outdated. They may not be able to identify them with their old method. So he's going to Tyrell, he's going to meet a Nexus 6 to test it, and they pull a fast one on him and say, well, let's test it on a human first. Try it on Rachel. Yeah, I got that. But my point of me even asking that is because the two characters in this movie I empathized with the most were the Nexus 6s, not Deckard, not uh, M. Emmett Walsh. None of the human characters, just the replicants. Maybe a little bit with Sebastian, actually. I kind of empathize with him a lot because of his plight and who he is and how lonely he was and his room full of toys. But the guy in this movie that you care most about is Roy because he has the most to lose here. He's dying, and all he wants to do is live and love his Pris. So for me, even though I don't condone his methods, I understood what was going on in his mind the most. He was born into a situation that he had no control over. He talks about being a slave. It's unfair that he's going to die in four years. He didn't choose that. He didn't choose to be an android. So I, I totally agree with you. Eventually, throughout this movie, you end up rooting almost for the replicants. And I think that's kind of what Ridley Scott was trying to get at is that it's more what you do with your life, not where you're born that matters. And can I just say that part of the reason this is all happening is because Rutger Hauer is so absolutely fantastic in this part. This movie is filled with performers who give amazing performances and then never do this again in the movies. Like, you know, Daryl Hannah followed this up with Splash. Has been a whip ever <laughs> since she's never been this Amazonian gymnast. Well, there's Kill Bill. Okay, you're right. It took Tarantino to drag that back out of her. He's talented in finding qualities that quickly appear on screen and then get forgotten. But she was doing stuff like Little Rascals. I mean, Gerald Hanna was not killer Amazon woman ever again until Kill Bill. And wow, how fantastic. Sean Young, a horrible actress. Her dead line readings are perfect here because they're skirting that issue of how emotional is she. Rutger Hauer, I've only seen him in maybe a handful of films beyond this and i understand his early foreign films are good i've never seen any of them but man this man it's like you've never seen this guy before he comes on he's alive every line reading he gives is weird and it's just filled with poetry and passion and it he just blew me away he's i, I got howling say. at the moon as he's chasing decker around i'm like this is absolutely amazing and you buy it you don't think it's over the top either you, you buy that completely Sting owes everything to Rutger Hauer. Like, everything he did to the police and Dune and all that. His whole look is everything. I'm like, this Rutger Hauer is it's so powerful, what he does in the movie. He's just, I can't say I'm a Rutger Hauer fan because what? I got this in The Hitcher. But, man, he is fantastic here, and I, I really love what he does. And he keeps you on edge. You never know what he's going to do. You never say he could kiss you. He could kill you. It's so weird. Yeah. When he goes and finally another pivotal moment is when he finally goes to Tyrell. And can I just say Tyrell needs to get better security? I'm going to digress <laughs> a little bit. Build a replicant security droid, dude. The first scene of the movie is another Blade Runner giving tests on all the new Tyrell employees. And Leon comes in, fails the test, and then shoots him. Like, why would you have the gun? And then later, all right, their whole plot about how are we going to get to Tyrell? How are we going to get to Tyrell? We'll get J.F. Sebastian in there. On a chess move with no video camera in an elevator, allows high access to the lead guy. And... <laughs> 
Like, whatever. We need this scene to happen. It's quite a thing to meet your maker, as Roy says, and what a great exchange that they have in which Tyrell basically tells his creation, we cannot extend your life. We've tried everything before. You were built for four years. That's all you're going to have. Enjoy it. And Rutger, a big difference, I got to say, another final cut difference from any other cut of the movie is Rutger always says, I want more life, fucker. And this time he says, I want more life, father. I don't know how important that means. It shocked me, though. Was the man-on-man kiss in the original cut? It was. All of it played the same. It's actually, in some cuts, in the final cut and the original cut, the eye crushing is longer and bloodier. Here's a fantastic story that came from the documentary. The original concept was that at that moment when he kills Tyrell, you were going to find out Tyrell was also a replicant. Roy would then proceed up into the pyramid to the very top and find the tomb of the human Tyrell who had died 40 years prior. And he knew at that point that there was no one that could save him. And that everything in Tyrell, the reason why Tyrell was still on Earth was because there is no Tyrell. They're all replicants there. Wait a minute. Then if the maximum life can be four years, yes. th- then that model of Tyrell is what? Replenished? I can't tell you any more than that. It was about two minutes in the documentary. And the problem was when they were going to crush the guys, they were like, and then robot parts pop out. But that's the thing. You can't visualize, show that because there is no robot part in a replicant. They are exactly like us. You would not be able to tell unless you went to a microscopic level that they are robotic. They could have used those Coke bottle glasses of his and used a shot with like the eyeball popping out next to it. And then he sees a serial number because they're so <laughs> enhanced by the glasses. That would have been great. That wouldn't have killed the mood at all of that scene. (laughs) (laughs) But I don't understand why he killed them there. And I mentioned that earlier. Please, and through his eyeballs, which is clearly a very real reason to kill him through with his eyeballs, obviously, but why kill him at all? Well, you know, that is their method of kill. When Leon grabs Harrison Ford and is about to do him on the street, he goes for the eyes, too. He takes two fingers, and he's about to poke him through the eyes. So I think that's just how they were trained. They're combat droids, and I think it's part of their programming. Yeah, and this movie is obsessed with eyes. You know, the whole Voight-Kampf machine focuses on the eyes. There's lots of shots of eyes. The owl in Tyrell's pyramid, it's always showing its eyes. And, you know, you have the old saying, the eyes are the window to the soul. And this movie's all about, you know, do the androids have souls? Are these humans so desensitized, dehumified, do they have souls? So I, I think going for the eyes is a very apt symbol because that's what you look through into someone to see who they are. Why does he kill his maker? I, I think it's just that theme that, you know, man eventually kills God and goes on to be its own thing. I, very heavy-handed symbolism going on here, in my opinion, but I didn't mind it. I loved it. I think that and the end are what gives Roy his real power as a character. Up until that point, he's just sort of a mysterious weirdo punk. But uh, at those moments, like, I really get him. I get his anger, I get his fear, and I get his embracing of life. And I think you need to see how vicious he can be just Mm -hmm. as a storytelling device to build up that tension at the end. So you're worried about what's going to happen with Decker when he meets him. I don't think you needed to kill him there. I do understand why it happened in the movie. I understand everything you're saying. I also got, if you want to talk about being a little heavy-handed, this is the man, he's, he's the guy with the vision behind all of this replicant stuff. So to kill the guy with the vision through his eyes makes a lot of sense to me. And also, Roy looks at himself as a slave. Here's the slave master. Here's the guy creating the slaves. Yeah. So why not kill him? Because this is set in those terms of slavery. I mean, you look at robot, it comes from the Russian word for slave, robotnik. 
which means slave. So there's a definite overthrowing your slave masters here and becoming free. Do you think there are other themes of the movies that need to be mentioned? It's a bigger part of the book, the whole idea that animal life has died and that there is a status symbol for owning a real animal as opposed to an electrical android version of that. Rick has a sheep in the beginning that he keeps on his roof and he doesn't want anyone to know that it's not real, that it's a robot one. And he spends all of his bounty hunter money trying to get a real goat. And Rachel has more of a conniving part in this. In the book, again, the androids are much more black and white. They always end up being evil. And they have the whole thing about the owl, right? Being real or not at Tyrell Corporation. The first animals to die after this toxic dust got into the environment were owls. They were the very first creatures to perish. And yes, they had completely gotten extinct. You couldn't buy a real owl. They're all gone in Philip K. Dick's book. But there are still some real animals. Uh, That's not really clear here. You do get it in certain lines when Zora is at the club and she says, do you think I would be working here if I could afford a real snake? It's there. You can see it. They go through a bazaar and you see ostriches. You can see there are moments where they're incorporating that. I don't think it needs to be any more than it is there. I totally disagree because if you hadn't read the book, I would think the whole animal thing loses you unless you just write it off as being just one of those weird eccentricities that this movie has like gaffs origami figures you you know a lot of just weird stuff and the animals the whole status symbol the animal is such a big deal in the book that's one of the things i actually wish was explained a bit better just for those coming in that haven't read it it falls by the side if you don't know i completely agree jacob this time watching it since i had read the book 10 years ago the things i remember the most about the book with the whole thing about the animals and the status thing and the whole thing about the owl being real or not in the tyrell corporation and all that stuff that was completely helpful for me, this viewing. And they had the owl, for example, and they had a lot of replicants, too. They had that red dot in the middle of their eyes that make them look like they're robots, kind of like the Terminator, if you will, but before the Terminator, but especially with the owl. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you see if it's a red dot in their eye? You could tell they're a replicant. I mean, what's so hard about that? Now, maybe that was given to us, the viewer, and the people in the movie couldn't see that, but the only reason the owl sticks out in your mind in the movie is because it tells you it's a robot. So what's the point? There's no payoff with the animal, robot, owl, or the snake thing or anything like that. No, it's just something in the background. It's enough for me. And I think in some ways it's complimentary. You can read the book and see things that aren't in the movie and vice versa. And I I think I would suggest people read the book and then go listen (laughs) to my Books and Nachos entry on uh, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? It's enough for me. I hear what you're saying. They could have gone all into it. There's so much to explore. But for the sake of some kind of, God knows, the movie was meandering and and going in all sorts of directions. I don't think I needed any more of it in the movie than it's there. I think it's just a colorful world and just one detail that goes unspoken. We talked about the different versions of this movie out there, and the most notorious version was the theatrical version, which they inserted a voiceover into the movie. So the film executives who saw the movie originally thought it was unclear and plotting and boring, all things we've already brought up in this podcast, (laughs) watching the final cut, I might add. So they had Harrison Ford go in there and record a voiceover to help try to clarify or whatever they wanted to do. And Stuart, you've seen both versions. Now, is the voiceover so bad and horrible against this movie, or does it actually help clarify what we're talking about here? I'm going to split the difference. 
I think if I were a producer trying to make a detective story in the future, I would want a lot more clarity in the narrative. And I don't blame the producers for saying, hey, test audiences aren't getting this. It's not in the movie. You're too close to this movie. We need somebody to come in and explain this. The poor decision was the fact the voiceover is badly written. There are two screenwriters credited with Blade Runner. Neither one of them wrote this voiceover. It's another guy that they just brought in real quick. And Harrison Ford told the story about how this went down. He came in, tried to shake the man's hand while he was writing. The guy wouldn't even talk to him. Harrison Ford was mad. Harrison Ford had worked with Ridley Scott to try and get the character of Deckard onto the screen without voiceover. The original draft of the script he read had voiceover. Harrison Ford didn't want to do it. It's a big reason they battled on set. Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott hated each other for decades after this movie. They wouldn't speak to each other. I guess they mended fences now enough to do a documentary about the movie. But at the time, it was a big sticking point. So the voiceover was something Harrison Ford didn't want to do when he was handed the pages. He laughed at them and he read them flatly, poorly, because he thought, if I read this badly, it's not going to be in the movie. And it is bad. The few clips I was able to find on YouTube, it is bad <laughs> i saw the original ending they tacked on the movie that's more happier ending i saw that one and they added voiceover after the most powerful scene where roy dies and he gives that beautiful speech i have seen things that you will never see that will be forgotten like tears and rain now i die and then you have harrison ford he was looking for the things we are all looking <laughs> for. Why are we here? Just show the damn dove flying into the sky. I don't need to be hit over the head after this powerfully emotional scene. You've just hit the nail on the head. If they're going to do voiceover, and let's face it, a lot of 1940s detective potboiler movies use voiceover. It's a convention that would have been fun to bring in, but you don't <laughs> comment on things that are obvious. You comment <laughs> on things that are not there, and that's the problem was that if they had gotten more into Rick Deckard's head, if we were able to know more about him, I'm all up for the voiceover had it been properly written and had Harrison Ford believed in it and delivered it powerfully. But as it is, it's embarrassing, and it really did have to come out because it just killed things. When you watch the movie without it, the movie feels much longer, and, and your mind wanders, and it's just more of a trance state that you're in going, I don't know what's going on. And there's things in this movie that don't make sense. They make a big deal about the fact that Leon has photos and that he wants to go back for his photos because he has emotional attachment. They mean something to him. And Rick Deckard scans the photos. We spend all this time scanning the photos, and he finds Zora away in the background in the mirror. It's a real cool scene, technology. I love all of it. It does absolutely nothing at all. First of all, why would Leon take these photos? They're like underlit. It's him in the bathtub. There's nothing sentimental about it. If Roy Batty has seen starships on fire in some quadrant, why not take a snapshot of that? Not, you know, you <laughs> You in the tub is not a memorable Kodak moment. I'm sorry. It's not. But then it's all for naught because by the time we finally get there and he goes, aha, I see the woman in the back. They already had a picture of Zora. There was nothing that was needed about any of this. It was extraneous, cool for cool sake, police detective work. It goes on and on and on. The voiceover helps a little to clarify that, but not enough. Honestly, the real problem was that they had two different screenwriters, all sorts of different drafts, and they got confused. 
You know, because they find the snake scale in the bathtub. That's all you needed. You could have cut from him picking up the snake scale in the bathtub to him going down to the local kiosk where they do runs on genetic testing. At the local kiosk, yeah, not the... <laughs> I love <laughs> yeah. how it was like a street vendor. He might as well have sold pretzels, too. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah. So They could have cut out all of that very cool, let's scan through the photo like it's an iPhone kind of moment and gotten us there quicker if they were concerned about story. And if they were concerned about story, maybe they shouldn't have hired Ridley Scott because that's not his forte. He's here to create this world. I love this story. Originally, on the very first draft of Blade Runner, it all took place in one room. And it was just about this Blade Runner interviewing this potential android, Rachel. And it was just all contained in one room. And Ridley Scott was brought onto the project and he said, what is going on in the world outside? And I think that's like, that was like the major turning point for the whole production. Because suddenly for him, it was all about what is the world outside. And that was his concern. And the whole story detecting part was secondary to his aims. So I really want to touch on the death of the two replicants, especially Zora. It was in slow motion, and she fell through a lot of panes of glass. Mm -hmm. And while it was visually interesting to look at, they gave an awful lot of time to her death. I didn't think that was needed. I liked that he figured it out. I liked that she figured out who he was. I liked that entire scene. And isn't this one of the scenes they expanded for this? Kind of. The newest cut, the real director's cut, they actually had the opportunity to go back and refilm. They refilmed for that scene. And the reason being, in any other cut you watch, there is a stunt woman in a wig. And it's pretty clearly a stunt woman in a wig. That kind of stuff didn't bother me, I guess, as much as it must have bothered Ridley Scott to actually say, okay, call up Joanne Cassidy 25 years later. We're going to go create a set. And with digital technology, she still could fit in the costume. She hasn't let herself go. They were able to more or less insert her running so that it's really her and not a stunt woman running through that glass. But the scene doesn't play any longer. There's not more shots. They didn't expand it. They enhanced it. There's a couple things with the death of these androids and some similarities. One, I like that her death is really violent as she falls through like 10 panes of glass. Leon's death, you know, you get that big bullet hole through his head. Daryl Hannah is pressed. She goes in that weird orgasmic spasm when she dies. And she's also wearing a flesh-colored leotard. Roy is stripped down to his boxers. I think Leon's the only one that's fully dressed. Again, I think these are hints that, one, if you show this really violent death, it's hard not to feel for that person. It's not just, oh, it's this android dying. Even if this just is a robot, this is a horrific death. And then again, visual cue with them being stripped down almost naked, at least three out of the four of them. Again, just bringing about their humanity. You're seeing their flesh. So I think there's a reason why their deaths are so violent, why Zora falls through ten panes of glass. It does go a little long, but I think it's necessary to drive home what they're trying to drive home with this story. You're absolutely right. In a conventional detective story, if it was a bad guy running away, you would have shot him and they would have cut, and that would have been it. They want to emphasize how horrible it is that she's lost her life at this moment. They want you to identify with her and not with Rick Deckard. You know, it's interesting, on the final cut, they extend all of those. Daryl Hannah also has 
has a slow-mo death. That's not true in the director's cut, the 90s version of it. They cut that down. I think it actually plays a little better there. But Zora's has always been a very lengthy death. Rutger Hauer giving that soliloquy, which he wrote, by the way. That line, all of these things will be gone like tears and rain, that's Rutger. He did that. There's so much where you're not emotionally invested in the movie, but that ending, wow, can I just say it's the most beautiful moment in the whole film, and we owe it all to Rutger. And Harrison Ford's face when he gave that soliloquy, to keep on panning back to Harrison Ford as he's watching this replicant die, his face in this movie was great because I'm not sure if I had the same face myself when I was watching that scene, but I have to think I was. It was just one of amazement and like... I can't believe what I'm actually watching right now, is what I got off of that. It was like you watch this thing die right in front of you. It was a really great scene, I have to agree with you. So one of the other big differences, again, we've alluded to this, you can see the original ending on YouTube, but this final cut, it cuts off a couple minutes earlier and totally changes the ending. It leaves it much more ambiguous. Well, actually, in the original director's cut that came out in 92 or 93, I believe they ended it there as well. I could be wrong about that. Stuart? There are, I'm going to call them three major cuts. There was also work prints that were leaked to theaters. But uh, the three major cuts, theatrical, they have a happy ending. Director's cut, which really wasn't the director's cut. It was rushed by Warner Brothers when they heard that there was a cult following for Blade Runner. But the director's cut ends with them trying to run away in the elevator. The final cut, which is Ridley Scott's director's cut, is the one that we watched. That also ends at the exact same place. Oh, okay. Because I love the ending of this final cut, Jacob. I thought it was fantastic. I loved how they were run off. It could lead to a sequel of them on the run from other bounty hunters, although it implied that Edward J. almost would let them go for a while to live their life. But it'd be kind of cool. They could actually have a, you know, these two on the run from people trying to kill her. And there are three uh, extended universe (laughs) novels where you can explore that if you so choose. I hear they're not very good, but they do exist, yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know that. No, I I agree with you, Rock. I like that, you know, you know Gaff, the Edward J. Momos character, knows that she's still alive because he leaves his signature origami figure in the lobby of the apartment. It has that sense of danger. I think it cuts off at the right moment. I don't need to know that they go into the country and Rachel... She doesn't die after the four years. Here's the best part. Huh. I happened to look at her lifespan while I was at Tyrell's. Tyrell was wrong. She has no end date, and we're going to be happy forever. I mean, yeah. yeah. I like the final cut ending. It fits the feeling of this movie. I love that electronic 8-bit sound. You hear it in, you know, Terminator. It had that synthesizer 8-bit sound. In Stanley Kubrick's A Clockwork Orange, he takes all this classical music and renders it electronically. It places it firmly in the 80s, but I just love that moment where that music kicks in as the elevator closes and you don't know what happens next. It's just a great feeling. That ending was one of the many struggles for the writers. They were having it imposed on them, and they went out and location shot and couldn't use any of the footage because of fog. And they ended up, all that footage you see of them driving around in the countryside, that is from outtakes of The Shining. Warner Brothers also made The Shining, and Kubrick rolls a lot of film. So they had reels and reels and reels of helicopter footage of mountainsides and fog. So they just said, okay, no one will ever know this comes from The Shining, and that's what that is. Wow, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Cool, that's a cool piece of trivia. Okay, so in the middle of the movie, Deckard's sitting at his piano with photographs of his really old photographs of I presume is his family, and he's sitting there all contemplating, drinking his drink, playing the piano, and then we see, right out of legend, a galloping 
unicorn. Now, did they use footage for Legend just like they took uh, the Shining footage? <laughs> actually, <laughs> actually, I have always wondered that. You know, Ridley Scott did make Legend. It was his next project. The special effects team that went out and shot that thought that they were taking Blade Runner money and doing tests for Legend. That's actually what they thought they did, were doing. There they you thought go. they were getting away with something. They didn't know it was going to be in the movie. It was something that Ridley came in with. And Ridley doesn't speak to the unicorn in the documentary or what it means or, or why. But in some ways, yes, it was a test reel for Legend and see if they could get the horn to stay on a horse while it ran by. But obviously, that's not why it's in the movie. The movie, It's in the movie for a narrative reason. Right. And so they have the unicorn galloping through, and then that's it. You can say she's having a dream about a unicorn, a very interesting running of a unicorn by. Then at the end of the movie, when we find out that Edward J. Olmos' character lets Rachel live, but he lets Deckard know he was there because he left one of his origami statues there. But the origami piece that he left behind was a unicorn. So therefore, that kind of implies Deckard himself is a replicant. That is definitely Ridley Scott's version of the story. He has always maintained that. It was a big reason why he and Harrison Ford fought creatively over the shoot. Was Harrison Ford was always against that. He thought it undercut the idea of Deckard learning from Roy and that a human learns from a replicant. He thought that was important. And to make it two replicants fighting each other undermined what that had happened before. So, yes, but that is Ridley Scott's version of it for sure. I totally agree with Harrison Ford. I think if Deckard is a replicant, it undermines everything this film is trying to get at. What does it mean to be human? And that the danger of being human is that you could become an android, that in this mass market society controlled by corporate overlords and the cops, the authority, the government, we lose our identity and we become android-like. You know, when we did The Departed, we talked about symmetry and the symmetry of the milk, and I, I just didn't get that. But here, there's some powerful symmetry going on, is that the androids are becoming more human, the humans have become more android-like. If Deckard's an android, this film becomes pointless in my eyes. Getting at the unicorn, when I was in college, I majored in political philosophy and had a minor in philosophy, which makes me like one of the most least marketable people when I go looking for a job. But one of the ideas about what is unique about humans is that it's our ability to think abstractly, to come up with the idea of a unicorn because it doesn't exist. I came up with an image of something that's not really out there. And so to me, when I saw that unicorn, that on one level, in the actual dream, that's a hint that Deckard is human because he has this abstract thought. And then when you see the origami unicorn at the end left by Gaff, that's a hint that maybe Deckard's become too robotic-like and being with Rachel will make him more human-like because he's become predictable. There's another origami scene where Gaff makes a little stick figure man with an erection. And it's right before the scene where Deckard goes and interrogates Zora, where she's naked for half the scene. He's kind of lets his guard down. I think it's just a hint that maybe Deckard has lost his humanity because he's running around hunting these things that look human, but he's told they're not and he has to murder them. I think it works much better if Deckard is not an android. And I have to agree that I think you don't need him to be an android in this movie or a replicant in this movie. I think the unicorn at the end, you don't have to have the unicorn shot in the middle of the movie and the unicorn at the end just tells him something different. Like, for example, he let her live. He let them be happy. That is what the unicorn at the end tells me is that I was here. I had a chance to kill her. I let her go. 
So go ahead and be happy with her, man. Be happy. But now that you have the unicorn shot in the middle of the movie, and that's supposed to tie into the unicorn at the end, implying he's a replicant because his dreams can be, I guess, implanted or something, it's also out of left field. Because a couple of the times in the movie, like, for example, Rachel asks Deckard, have you ever taken the test yourself, right? They also put out a human Blade Runner who gets killed by Leon, right? So perhaps they're using a replicant to kill a replicant because it's too dangerous for humans to go after these replicants. You can also say that. I got all of that. I was thinking about this a lot afterwards. This is the part I was thinking about. And I don't really necessarily think all those clues equal him being a replicant. I think you can imply that absolutely. And if that's what Ridley Scott is saying, I don't think I need that for the story. I think I want Deckard to be a human to fall in love with a replicant because of what I said before about the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, that he falls in love with the very thing he's hunting because at this point he is a shell of a person and the only thing left for him to do is do that. But it is amazing that this is a debate that goes on and on about whether or not he is a replicant. There's a couple other clues. Rachel seems very pointed. At two points, she corners Deckard and says, have you ever taken the Voight comp test yourself? Then she asked him at another point, have you ever retired a human being on accident? She's very fascinated by what his responses would be if he were put into her shoes and if he were to empathize with that. That's also a little clue there. The biggest one got fixed in this final cut. There had been a mistake that had been inserted early on when he goes and sees his police captain, Brian, and says, I don't want to go back to work, and he's talked into it. They're originally told that there are six replicants that came back from off-colony, and in previous cuts, one of them got fried, which meant that there is another one floating around. In this version, they say two of them got fried trying to break into Tyrell. So in previous cuts of Blade Runner, you would always be wondering, well, who is the other replicant? Because we know the four that we see, the skin jobs we see, are obviously there. And then one, we're told, is electrocuted off camera. But who is this other one? So it builds a mystery into right there that the final cut gets rid of. Part of the reason why that was even an issue, why that line reading was such, was they were originally going to write in another replicant character. There was a fifth one called Mary. The idea was that she would be the wounded one. She was the one that was actually dying. She had been mortally wounded trying to break into Tyrell, and they had cast her. And then there was a writer strike, and they couldn't actually uh, change the script to write her in. So she ended up getting cut. But there is one more little detail as to why Deckard may be a replicant. My feeling is it doesn't really matter because... What the themes really are getting at is that there's very little distinguishing between real natural occurring life and artificially created life. And that I certainly like that it creates ambiguity and doubt. I think that the unicorn dream pretty much makes it conclusive that they know his thoughts and as such that would imply he is a replicant. But I think at the end of the day, what's really powerful is that we really come to understand that life is life and these characters all deserve dignity, whether they be artificial replicants or real humans. Well, we've talked a lot about the themes and the ideas and actual some of the scenes in the movies, but it all comes down to if you enjoyed it and if you recommend it. So, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend Blade Runner? Stuart. Absolutely. This is... One of the handful of science fiction films that I can think of that are essential, if you care for the genre, you really have to see it. I don't know if you're going to like it. I'm not recommending this thinking everyone is going to love this. I know a lot of people that don't like the movie, don't get the movie, don't feel about the movie much. And it's certainly easy to make the case that it's more about the art direction in the world than it is about the story. I think the story is a little sloppily told. 
in most cases, that would turn me against a movie. In Blade Runner, it does not. I don't mind that the detective story gets muddled, that we don't know exactly where we are or empathize always with the characters. I think it's a fantastic vision, and I think it has to be seen. Jacob? I also recommend this movie. As I said earlier, unless you're a 10-year-old boy or a huge Michael Bay fan, no, this movie's not for you. This is science fiction. It's detective, robot hunting, but it's not an action film. And when you read Philip K. Dick's stories, his writing, his stuff really isn't action-oriented. It's very internal story, stuff going on in people's head. And I'm sure we'll watch some other movies based on the stuff where they made it into an action film. But this is not an action film. And I wish I would understand that the first time I saw this, I would have appreciated it more that first time where I fell asleep. But it's a challenging movie. Part of it just because of the themes it's getting in, because it is ambiguous, it is subtle at times, and also because it's not a perfect movie. There's scenes that do go on too long. There's times where it does seem boring. So I, I don't think this is a perfect movie by any means, but it's a movie that should be seen. Stuart, you talked about the art direction. There's just some beautiful-looking scenes here, uh, not in the sense uh, of aesthetic beauty. I mean, everything's dark and dirty and grimy-looking, but they take you back, and especially realizing this was 1982 when this film came out, it, it makes it that much more amazing to look at. So I definitely recommend this film. And just to be clarify, Stuart, Jacob, do you recommend this final cut version as the version to watch, or do you advise they watch all the versions? I've only really seen the final cut, so I'm, I'm gonna, I, I can't really speak to what I've seen of the original. I don't like, but maybe Stuart could speak more. Maybe that original cut, maybe Stuart, will it appeal to more of the mass audience? I think if you were interested in knowing the detective story better, the first cut is actually the best because you will actually have it spelled out for you. Not very well, not with a very good reading from Harrison Ford, but it really does make the movie flow faster. So if your problems are with pacing or ambiguity, the first cut is the best. I'm a little partial to the middle cut, the director's cut, just because it was the first one that I saw. I saw it in theaters when it was re-released. It's the one with the biggest wow impression because it was my first time. This new cut's certainly interesting, and they make tweaks, but essentially it's that version all over, and I think you can watch any of them and get the power that is the movie, but probably the director's cut or the final cuts are the ones you'd want to see first. Okay, and I said before that the first time I watched this movie, the first couple of times, I was bored. I have to say, this time, I got much more invested in the, what was going on. I was able to follow the plot more. I paid more attention, perhaps because I've watched many other movies since I've watched this movie that had some of the similar things going on with pacing and things. I found the pacing in this movie extremely bad. I really did. And I'm not going to lie. I looked at the DVD counter to see how much longer the movie was going to be twice while watching this movie this time. That being said, I wasn't necessarily as bored. I didn't fall asleep. But the pacing got me. But I did enjoy watching this movie more this time. And I'm not sure if it is the version, but I'm finally in a place where, in my life as a moviegoer, where I can not only appreciate this movie, but I actually can be entertained by it to some level. But that being said, it is not a perfect movie, as we've all three of us have said, and that has to be taken into account. Because if you're going into this movie thinking it's going to be a slam-bam action fest, you're going to be severely disappointed. If you're going in here for a nice character drama, I think you also might be disappointed, because it's not very fleshed out with every single character. A lot of things are implied, and it leaves a lot for you, the audience, to fill in. And that's great, but it's also frustrating depending on the viewer. So do I recommend you watch Blade Runner 
I think you have to watch Blade Runner. I say yes, I recommend it. But I don't recommend it for everybody. And so be sure that you give it a real chance when you watch it. And all of us have said this in one way or another, that we've watched this movie multiple times and we've gotten different things out of it each time. So I'm not recommending you watch it four or five times, but I am telling you the first time you watch it, it may not be your cup of tea. And part of my recommendation is warning you of that. So I think this is a movie that you have to watch. I think it's one of those, especially for our generation, check it out. You may like it, you may not, but I guarantee you will have an opinion on why. And you can share that opinion on our forums at nowplayingpodcast.com. There's a link to our forums. You can also find our previous episodes of our other retrospective series. We have Friday the 13th, Terminator, talk about replicants, right? We have Star Trek that has Android replicants in it. We have a whole bunch of other series you can find all in our archive section at nowplayingpodcast.com. If you like this podcast and our other podcasts, please leave us a positive review on iTunes so other people like yourself can find us and just join in the conversation and join in the fun. Well, this is the first episode of our Philip K. Dick retrospective. We will be back next episode with Total Recall, the awesome Arnold Schwarzenegger movie that came out in 1990. But do we still find it to be awesome all these years later, 20 years later? And are three tits still alluring? (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to have to get my ass to Mars and find out. That's right. We'll get our ass to Mars next time. So thank you, Stuart and Jacob, for joining me today. No problem. And please join me if you're interested in, in learning about the original source novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, over at Books and Nachos. And I have one more thing to say before we end this. I have to tell you guys a confession. I am a replicant. Oh, wow. And I didn't guess that. No, you didn't. I, maybe some of our <laughs> viewers might have figured that out by now. But <laughs> I knew it because you were pulling the legs off of spiders the whole time we were recording <laughs> The whole time. That's all I was Anyway, have a great day. We'll talk to you soon. See things you people wouldn't believe. Attack ships on fire off the shoulder of Orion. I watched sea beams glitter in the dark near the Ten Houser Gate. All those moments will be lost in time, like tears in rain. Time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series. I have to hand it to you. It's the best mindfuck yet. Now that you've heard this movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Stuart's thoughts on Philip K. Dick's original work. Just because I write science fiction doesn't mean I believe in this stuff. I don't even think flying softwares are real. You can find the other episodes of the Philip K. Dick Retrospective Series at nowplayingpodcast.com in the archives section, as well as reviews of other classic movie series, including Predator, Terminator, Star Trek, Rambo, The Karate Kid, all the Avengers movies, Batman, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and many more. No doubt the precogs have already seen this. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to our iTunes feed can be found at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Look, this has not been one of my better days. 
So just give me my five minutes of machine time. You can also support Now Playing by making a donation using the donate button at the bottom of our webpage. Your donations help keep Now Playing on the air. Hope you enjoyed the ride. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Links to our Podbean page are available from nowplayingpodcast.com. I want more life, fucker. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Very few humans have seen what you've seen today, and we're determined to keep it that way. So, if you ever reveal our existence, we'll erase your brain. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. It's like you know me. You can read me. You can follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post movie mini-reviews, as well as new episode announcements. Links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. What does a scanner see? Into the head? Down into the heart? Does it see into me? Into us? Clearly or darkly? Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums, where you and the other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie. The link to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. I've had people walk out on me before, but not when... I was being so charming. Now Playing's Philip K. Dick retrospective series is edited, produced, and credits announced by Arnie Carvalho. Come on, don't be mean to the one who does everything for you. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinions of Venganza Media Incorporated. The pre-cogs are never wrong, but occasionally they do disagree. The film discussed in this podcast and all audio clips and music used are the property of their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the movie discussed in this show. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that book or film series. With any luck, this thing will just blow over. Not likely. Once your authorities open up a file on someone, they never close it. Now playing is copyright and trademark, Venganza Media Incorporated, 2011 and 2017, all rights reserved. Do you think I'd let you leave without a kiss goodbye? Yeah, I actually came to know Philip K. Dick when I was in college. I was taking an English class. Oh, everyone experiments in college. I, I know, and you know, I tried a bit of dick in college. I, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of it. I don't. We all try a bit of dick in college. Um, no. I... This is not designed in a way to be enjoyed. Uh, uh, fuck, I'm I'm blanking. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's not it's not made to be enjoyed. <laughs> <laughs>
investment. So we're not doing the French film, Confessions Correct. of a Crap Artist? Correct. Confessions d'un barreau. <laughs> Le Partly because artiste. it's not available on DVD. <laughs> So, Brock, tell us what this Blade Runner is all about. Brock, how about a plot summary? <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, I mean, are we overthinking this, maybe? I. <laughs> oh man, I can keep going. Uh, yeah, no, it's good. <laughs> yeah. Just, it's just, Let's it's do just... the Shatner version. Brock, we need a plot we need... summary. A plot summary. Brock, what is the deal with Blade Runner? Can you give us a plot summary? That was my Seinfeld uh, introduction. All right. So how about a so how about a plot summary, Brock? If you need more dick, go to Books and Nachos. <laughs> you got Philip K. Dick, drug addled. So dick and drugs. It's my college experience rolled up right there. <laughs> Edward James Olmos, obviously a Latin actor. I'm not sure exactly his ethnicity. And no stranger to replicants but, in his career, Battlestar Galactica. Oh, I forget about that. I, I was like, Miami Vice? Oh, right, <laughs> yes. Stand and Deliver? What is <laughs> is I Lou I, Phillips a replicant? What's going yeah. on? Yeah, no, I, I, I must confess I never did see new Battlestar Galactica. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah, I didn't, I didn't get him on that one. Oh, I didn't. I, Robotnik sounds like you made that up, like a like a cartoon would make that up. But I'm, I believe you. <laughs> <laughs> it, that's what Wikipedia told me. And, so. Well, it must be true. We if it's don't on the internet. challenge Wiki ever. <laughs> Ridley doesn't speak to the unicorn in the documentary, or what it means, or or why. I'm sorry. Did you say he doesn't speak to the unicorn, like like a, like a conversation? Really speak on the uniform on a unicorn. He does not speak to the issue of the unicorn. Oh, okay. He does not speak. <laughs> he does not talk to unicorns either. They, they, they were the only people they didn't talk to on this. I mean, they talked to grips, caterers. I mean, everything gets covered. But the unicorn. They're busy doing Harry Potter movies over in England. Yeah. They, could, they weren't yeah. available for the documentary. So. Yeah, I think if it ends up being 70 minutes, that's fine. I don't want them all. I don't want to spend 70 minutes on Screamers. You know what I mean? Well, like, I don't think we're going to have to. I, I, don't, I don't think that a lot of these movies will, you know, next. I don't know if I want to spend 70 minutes watching it. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder uh, how the audience will follow along with us on this series. I really do. Because of it's so, that there's actually more thematic, th thematic elements in these movies than... <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street? <laughs> all of Friday the 13th combined. <laughs> <laughs> no! So, more than Jason X? No way! That was as important to science fiction as any uh, <laughs> Philip K. Dick. I really thought Jason X was a re-envisioning of Blade Runner. I thought it took it to another I mean, level. It, the guy actually had a blade and was running in the movie. Yeah, so. yeah. It, it's, yeah, they literalized it. I thought Good that call, was brilliant. Man. Good call. <laughs>